It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris, I have some good news. Oh, you do, Andrew? Yes, I do. I was cleared by my surgeon to do whatever I want. Really? And what and what is that going to be? <laughs> whatever well, you want. Because <laughs> that's if, that, if someone told me I could just do whatever I want, I don't know if it'd be rock climbing. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, you know, holding, uh, you know, doing like raves at climbing areas and maybe like, I think I might get into like uh, building, buildering. You got this your new thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You've got your your arms all tuned up to turn little knobs and press <laughs> buttons so you could be a DJ. <laughs> I could be a DJ. I I can't quite lift my arm all the way over my head yet, so it's not like I'm I'm just like ready to go, but everything's so healed d- up so right. I can I can get back to climbing soon. As a DJ, your sort of hype raising the roof would be um half Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Getting. When you when you step away from the the board for 10 minutes and and raise your hands in the air. <laughs> but the good news is yes, for I'm you is that DJs by the way if anybody's not cluing into that. <laughs> Fuck DJs. Yeah. Um no the good news for you is that I'm going to have to stop living vicariously uh through your climbing exploits which I'm sure That's you're good because be I'm I'm for. done. <laughs> so it's perfect passing of the torch. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be climbing anything of any significance for quite some time. Um, so the holiday season when it comes to parenting is is kind of epic. So I'm just yeah. going to do my ab workouts. Um, I asked for ab workouts from people on the Enormacast, and I've gotten piles and piles of them. And I've been trying to do this one by this sort of, you know, super hot Italian fitness influencer named Pamela Reef or something like that. I think she's Italian. You know, just like basically stereotypical Barbie in a in a human form. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you lay down on the ground and try to keep up with her in an ab workout, it's fucking impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I don't know what I don't know how V you know what V grade she crushes, but she can fucking do ab workouts like you wouldn't believe. So that's been that's my future for the next few weeks. Nice. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. Have you been but, getting out at all to any crags? Yes, yes. I went to Indian Creek, my old stomping grounds. Um, I don't what's actually that, climb what's there. What's that place like? It's uh, it's like a lot of like steep, juggy bouldering. Sounds no, it's, fun. You know, it's it's the 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 sort of I don't know. It's like the last corral where they put dirt bags and and like hundred thousand dollar sprinters like in close. <laughs> proximity in such close proximity to each other um in a way i don't think happens at at many climbing areas anymore Mm -hmm. Um, but we went down there on a family trip and uh for the first time in in several years we posted up in the creek pasture you know i often tell people we used to call that the secret spot Mm -hmm. back in the day um it is now not a secret at all it's sort of the biggest campground down there what we did though is we and this might be some beta although i think it's we lucked out with a cancellation, but um, the group site down there is reservable, and it's only 128 bucks um, hmm. for the whole weekend. And uh, which is you know, anywhere else in the country, that's an incredible deal to camp for yeah. for two nights with several people. Um, very easily affordable with a group of even five, like we had. 
Yeah. Um, but the key thing about it is you get a reserved site. And, right. Uh, you, we did have a, a late night squatter kind of sneak in and squat with us and then hurry away in the morning, um, <laughs> which is a shame because we would have made them coffee, certainly. But um, yeah, so it's nice to roll into a place that's completely bonkers. Um, I also call Creek Pasture Little Calcutta, but that might be racist. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and have a reserved site. But what happened was, and this is a callback to a recent episode, is that on Friday night, at about eight o'clock, an actual rave began in the campground. Oh shit! Um, with DJ, with bonfire, with lots of drugs, with naked people. Perhaps most um, most impactful with you know a thumping bass from about eight p.m. to you know well after midnight. I I didn't hear it end, but some people said two a.m. So yeah, just just calling back to the uh, to the potential rave in in rifle episode, and the <laughs> thing I realized that actually I admire about the rifle people is at least they have the courtesy to do it in a place away from where everyone is sleeping. Hopefully, right. getting up, you know, for their one weekend a month, maybe one weekend a year on Saturday morning to go climbing that they've been planning for for months on end, dreaming about. Um, there was very little dreaming going on anywhere near this rave. How on, loud uh, was it? On, I mean, we were we were quite a ways away, so it wasn't terrible where we were because the group site's kind of off to the side. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it was loud enough to do drug filled orgy like dancing to. So, you know, if your campsite was say ten feet to the right or left of that one. <laughs> <laughs> you were enjoying those beats. You were enjoying those little knob twists um, that that the DJ was doing. You know when he would, you know, hold his do do the thing with your headphones where you put on one ear and in between your shoulder. Can you see me doing that right now? Yeah, yeah. That's a DJ thing. And then you twist a knob and then you stand back and raise your hands in the air. Well, now you just you hit play on your it. iTunes uh, playlist, and <laughs> no, that's what yeah. started it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but as I was saying, I, I sort of admire the 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 rifle people because they were planning on having it in the park well away from anyone camping. Mm-hmm. Um, hats off to you. And what I realized is it's just so boring. Like <laughs> it's just like the idea of of like loading up all your shit and driving to a campground on a Friday night and and then, you know, doing Molly or whatever it is and it's just all so boring. And, and I think when you get like 10 years out from that, you're going to be like amused that you did it, but also sort of mildly embarrassed that that was your weekend, you know? Yeah. Because like, it, it's just boring. It's just a boring thing to do in the context of a, of a climbing area. I don't me. know. It sounds so. kind of fun to me. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that I, was I think I would little... be one of those naked thumpers out there. Well, certainly. And, and, you know, <laughs> the thing about it, and I, I, you know, we were far enough away that it didn't disturb me. So I was fine with it. Had I, you know, a certain period of my life, had I been in, in proximity to it, I would have been fucking livid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that is annoying about it, and again, call back to the rifle thing is that even within like spitting distance of where we were camping, there is like, 20 places where you could drive off into the desert right. by yourselves and do the exact same thing. Oh like, yeah. That's a good point. 
and that that's kind of the annoying thing about it. I'm just like, and I guess I'm curmudgeonly. I'm this old. Like why um, in the camp in the campground? Like just like walk because you're lazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the and the other thing that's interesting about and this is for future ravers is that, and I and I think there's there's people that will get pissed enough to contemplate this, is that this is San Juan County, and the Monticello Sheriff's Department is ex- very famous for like shaking down. Colorado plate cars that come through to try to get weed mm-hmm. and that sheriff rolling up on this party um I mean he literally like jerks off to that kind of thing like that <laughs> to just roll up knowing you know a, a quick little shakedown and probable cause is you know is right there yeah um could net you know whatever party drugs and or weed because everybody kind of forgets still that Utah is uh it's fully illegal right to have pot so that's the other thing about having it in the campground and possibly pissing off someone enough to, you know, who's got kids, let's say, you know, who's got a family that is kind of annoyed or just pissed off enough to drive a couple miles and, uh, and, and, you know, shoot an anonymous uh, message out to the sheriff's department. You know, uh, just kind of from a, from a party goer standpoint, driving off right across the road from the Creek pasture is actually a, a road that goes out into the desert. Like, Go out there and do your thing, and then you don't have that issue uh, possibly right. coming up um, as far as your your rave is concerned. So that's um, good beta. Word to I the wise, you I know. I think that's a good uh, good message. Because honestly, Utah sheriffs, man, that's their thing. <laughs> it's kind of their thing. <laughs> it's busting people from out yeah. of state. Some people have Pornhub.com, and Utah sheriffs have Colorado hippies with drugs that they can bust. Anyhow, um, so that was our weekend. <laughs> well, that sounds fun to me. I guess I still am living vicariously through your exploits at the moment, but hopefully I'll be out there uh, waving my finger at the young young party goers soon. Well, here's another addendum is my wife actually over, went over and danced. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So we're a house divided on, on how cool that particular party was. And she actually said to me that she thought, when she was dancing that they probably needed to turn it up a little bit. Nice. If you meet us out in the wild, just know that Steph is much cooler than I am. (laughs) Well, that's obvious. Um, I thought we could just quickly talk about something that I thought was so funny, which was this, uh, these photos that came out on social media this week of Jared Leto climbing the Empire State Building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's not a ton to talk about but it's so funny watching the reactions to this like people are yeah. s- livid and like <laughs> pissed and just shitting on this guy um <laughs> now apparently he's like an actor or something yeah um he's also <laughs> uh a front man for a uh some sort of band right yeah i and, I, and celebrity friend of many of our most beloved climbing leaders yes He's yeah, he's homies with Honold and other folks. TC, Sharma. Right. Renan Ozturk, who filmed this uh this thing. So what was your what was your take when you saw these pictures of uh Jared Leto in a Santa suit on the Empire State Building? I don't know if I was I've been too busy perfecting my DJ set or <laughs> what, but I glanced at it and was like, uh oh, huh hody dee hody da like yeah. there's this guy that needs more attention than anyone else on the planet doing 
something, you know. Right. And and then I was like, oh, Renan's shooting it. Good for him. At least he is he is uh, enjoying the largesse of of uh, Mr. Leto because I'm sure it was a very well paid gig for Renan. So, and I, you know, I'm not going to comment on his actual friendship with with Jared. I, I think they're I think they're buds. Mm-hmm. It's probably very genuine, but um, but that part of the celebrity connection is always nice. Uh, when when it trickles down a little bit to your climbing partners but other than that i was like yeah that looks dumb and uh and and flip through to some meme that len nesifer put up <laughs> you know <laughs> far more interesting more. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, yeah i i think that my take on it is that a lot of people were pissed because it was kind of presented as this genuine athletic achievement of some kind mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of like a, it was obviously it's a stunt or a publicity, you know, stunt for his whatever music thing that he does. It was just interesting because I, I think if it was just if that's like on a, the surface level, what it was is like this is a publicity stunt. If, I don't know if that was more to the front than I think climbers wouldn't be so up in arms about this. But there was some really like mean uh, comments that were directed at uh, Jared Leto. And, um, which is surprising coming from me. Cause I'm usually like at the forefront the for, of the that. Spearhead yeah. Of that. I'm spearheading those, <laughs> those kinds of things. But I, I was kind of, I was like, Whoa guys, you guys are going too far. Like, this is just kind of like, why are you so pissed off about this? Um, so I found myself in the unusual position of being the, the voice of reason, <laughs> right. maybe more, uh, level headed about, about this. I think that there, the, there's a problem with social media. And that the sort of adult way of looking at the line between giving someone some shit and genuinely being harsh and criticizing them without humor is is a very much uh, sort of a lost art mm-hmm. in social media to the point where I don't I, I kind of like back away from even trying because you can't sort of give shit without everyone jumping on your ass. And then also people try to sort of jokingly do it and it comes across terrible or, 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 or they're genuinely mean about it. And I think it's fine. You know, there, there were me, I mean, that's, that's kind of the cool thing too, is he just gave the memers like all this fodder because mm-hmm. it's like, how can you not sort of make fun of this mm-hmm. and making fun of this? Isn't the same thing as calling, you know, Jared Leto a fucking asshole or, or like whatever it happens to be, it's worthy of making fun of. And if, if he and, and his compatriots that were involved didn't realize that was going to happen, then he doesn't really understand climbing very well. Right. But yeah, the outrage or the, like the genuine ire and, and vitriol, um, I glanced at it and then that maybe was why I just dipped out right away anyways. Cause I was like, okay, here they go. Here goes the climbers that somehow Jared Leto was encouraging this sort of behavior or, you know, whatever it happens to be these like weird straw man things that come up or whatever. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, he's doing a publicity stunt that has some very adjacent thing to climbing. And yeah. And that was like, whatever, like, great. Do you think that because he positions himself as like being kind of, you know, not like a great climber, but more, uh, he at least likes climbing and goes rock climbing with like Honold and shit like that. Do you think it's because of that background that people were kind of holding him to this higher standard? Like you should know better like this, like you're using two, like one of the things I saw that people were upset about, which doesn't make sense to me was that he was had on two top ropes. Like he had two ropes attached to his harness. Um, 
and also there there is also the lack of historical knowledge about the empire state building being free soloed which i guess alan elaine robert did in 1994 or sure. something like that. that that's the that's he's like the pioneer building climber of, as well as uh spider dan goodwin yeah who 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 is uh, i don't know if he climbed the empire state but he's uh, i would find it highly likely that he did mm-hmm so here's this, you know, here's this like celebrity goofball dude on double top ropes and like some weird, you know, ski onesie <laughs> from the 90s or whatever. And <laughs> it's just like, it's obviously you're going to start make fun of that. Like I kind of, right. I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Make fun. And that's yeah. where it should end, you know. But there's also this weird thing that celebrities are kind of dehumanized in our culture. Like they're if you're famous, if, if you're part of Hollywood, you're kind of, it's just like accepted that you can say the meanest things about that person on the internet mm-hmm. and like no one will bat an eye or think poorly of you for saying such things. Yeah. Anyway, it's like well, that actually, kind of celebrity. You don't, you don't want to reach that kind of celebrity because then people just think of you as like this sub human, like, you know, two dimensional. Are we thing. there yet? Us? Is our, yeah, is our level of celebrity oh, there yet? Not. Are we subhuman to people's minds? Well, here's my question. You know, we, we did a bonus episode about celebrity climbers, sort of like the history of, of true celebrities dipping into climbing. And, and, and Mr. Leto was on, on that episode. Um, but so here, here's my question is that where does he stand on this in, in terms of like, like I said, he's dipped into climbing enough that a sort of sensitive person would sort of would understand kind of the the milieu you know the the community and and what we do and what we what we do about these sorts of things when we find someone doing something we we see as illegitimate but like tapping into the climbing zeitgeist if you will um to promote it or to do whatever like is he so far removed that he doesn't see any of that do you think if if climbers criticizing him got to him which unlikely won't because I don't mm-hmm. think the level of this guy probably sits around reading the comments. Right. Would it bother him? You know, the way like being called out for doing something dumb as a climber would bother us or, or, uh, do, do you know what I mean? Like, does he seek legitimacy in the climbing world? He seems to in his real climbing stuff. Yeah. You know, he, he hobnobs with the greatest. Some of them, you know, put up with him. Some are, are genuinely friendly with him. Do you know what I mean? Like, does it? Do you think it matters to him that I, he seems cool to other climbers? Would this bother him that we find him to be a comic figure? Well, I, I kind of have some behind the scenes knowledge on Ooh. this, uh, but he apparently Wait, do you have his cell number. You talk to Jared. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we can bleep that out. Get him on the show. It's nine <laughs> seven. No, <laughs> um, I think he's a he's a person who surrounds himself with people who only say yes to him and yeah that's uh, a celebrity thing. yeah it's a celebrity thing and i think that just kind of deranges your personality a bit so although i can't imagine it, like if he called honold like what well, honold would probably give him <laughs> a very blunt uh, assessment yeah. on whether that was dumb jerry <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah why'd you have two ropes jared it's kind of weak why'd sauce you have two ropes, jared? yeah <laughs> You know, they don't let celebrities just do whatever they want unless you're Tom Cruise. But even that's like a big deal. Yeah. Like, I'm sure there's no production level that was going to be like, yeah, well, you just can hang at this old 80 meter rope that 
that Renan has from, you know, <laughs> Meru and we'll just top rope you on that. So, I mean, anyone who thinks about it realizes that there's some expectations of safety that are different yeah, than climbing. Okay. It's like OSHA and it's the Empire State Building. It all had to be okayed. Not to mention he's Jared Leto. So they're not going to let him die. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So all of those comments are just fucking stupid and immature because they don't have, have the, wherewithal to look at the bigger picture and realize what was really going on there so mm -hmm. anyhow yeah well at some point i think i should probably see something that jared leto has been in because i still haven't um you must have dude i honestly i have He's no idea who this forever. guy is he was like a kid actor on one of those like what are those like wb shows or some shit like I don't know what what party of five or one of those. I think he was on one really? of those. And then you didn't see Dallas Buyers Club, dude. Nope. Oh, dude, do that one. Okay. Yeah, I mean he's great in it. Okay. Is, was he? Did he get an Oscar? He's nominated. I I don't know, dude. I I really yeah. don't know anything about this guy. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> check it out. I just watched um I just watched uh the second uh, Blade Runner with Gosling, uh -huh. and he's in that, and he's it's he's terrible. Okay, but I I think it was more the writing and maybe like I didn't see a purpose for his role, right? Anyhow, but yeah, but no, but Dallas Buyers Club, dog. That's where you start with Mr. Leto. Well, I thought the photos were cool. I didn't think um, I didn't have like quite the heated reaction that a lot of people out there had. I'm not sure what what's wrong with everyone. Um, Do people have a problem with uh, with uh, Aquaman as much? Well, I, that was my one joke that I made about this on social media was that I thought that Jason Momoa in a King Kong suit would have been better for... Sure. <laughs> but don't you think Momoa somehow gets away with this kind of shit? Yes. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic, I guess, yeah. as to why he does and, and Jared doesn't. Right. Like what's, their, what's their approach differences that, that allow them to be cool to us and not, or not? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's a fascinating question that I'm not going to think too deeply about. <laughs> Is it have to do with what what uh, Jason Momoa looks like almost naked? Maybe. Maybe yeah, he just kind of seems cooler than Jared Leto. I guess you're right. It's like anybody. Yeah. Like anyone you meet. Like yeah. that guy's cool and that guy's not. Yeah. But on paper, you'd think that Jared would be super cool. Right. Right? Has his band. Chicks dig him. Like, you know, he's famous, he's rich. Well, now he's just all of the uh, credibility, whatever it was that he had in the climbing community is all out the window now. He's starting from <laughs> scratch. <laughs> he's got to put another video of him climbing 5'9 with Alex. <laughs> we'll be right back on top. Jakob Schubert is a four-time world champion, an Olympic bronze medalist, and he has more IFSC gold medals than any other male competitor. He's also sent some of the hardest routes in the world, including, most recently, a first ascent of Project Big and Flatanger, which he rated 9C. All right, so we are here with um, Jakob Schubert, who has more gold medals than I have accomplishments in my life. And... <laughs> um, we are we are humbled and honored to be in your presence of someone who's so decorated with awards. Because usually we just talk to um, dirtbags and yeah. losers on the <laughs> <Exactly>. show. <laughs> um, but no, I'm. There's I, only gold <laughs> medals have chocolate inside of them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So um, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Why don't we just start with like the most recent uh, big news out of your world of, of climbing, which is uh, Project Big. And this is, is it the third 9C in the world that has been proposed? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. You you came in, you did this route at Flatanger. It's a big, uh, big route, as the name implies. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you threw down the 9C grade. The other interesting thing I think a lot of people, listeners will, will be familiar with is that you live streamed your send, which is probably, as far as I can tell, the first time that's happened. Let's start with the live streaming part. Why why did you decide to uh, live stream your send of Project Big? Um, so yeah, I mean, it was uh, basically an idea from my whole team, uh, like my manager and the camera crew and myself. We were like uh, brainstorming what we going to do because uh, the year before already in fall, kind of around the same time, I already spent... Uh, a full month on Project Big, and we already made a video about it with the full process, Adam and myself trying together. And um, we kind of didn't want to do the same video again, right? We felt like that might be boring. I mean, obviously, if I would send, then maybe it would still work out, but we didn't know that beforehand. Um, so we thought about what could we do that's like different, that's special. And um, uh, we already... F- like had the thought, I think the year before a little bit, just because um, it might be a route and a place where it kind of offers, uh, it, it's like offering it to us to live stream it just because there is a really good internet connection, for example. That's obviously very important. Otherwise, it would never be possible. Uh, it's quite easy to have um, different camera angles, like one tripod at the top of the cave, like not at the top of the cave, but up the hill in the cave, which you can already see almost the whole route. And that's kind of like how it all started, having the thought. And then we invested in some things and obviously really hoped it would work out, but didn't really know it because we never really tried it. And um, we were really happy how we were able to stream it, but then obviously even more happy how the whole community reacted and how everyone uh, loved it. And uh, it was a lot of fun in the end. And obviously I'm also really glad it worked out so well with like, I mean, it kind of, it was almost like a Hollywood movie. Like if, if you would write it, you want it exactly like that. And obviously we were really lucky with that. So I didn't send it in immediately. I did send it at some point, but there was also some drama, like a, um, some close tries and it kind of built up and uh, yeah, uh, uh, it was a really fun process. Did it pressure you at all? I mean, were you thinking about how, like, I got to get this done on this live thing? Because, yeah, like, you know, 25 live streams later, um, it might have lost some of its flair, you know, if you kept doing it day after day. Like, <laughs> For sure. Oh, yeah. Jokob's on his live stream and grin. Great. <laughs> yeah. But you, but yeah, you pulled it true, off. But, I mean, I, I, I didn't know, obviously, how many, like, yeah, tries it's going to take. I wasn't sure if I'm going to send the route uh, that trip. Honestly, before going there, uh, I was pretty confident that I have a good shot of sending it just because I felt quite good on it the year before. And I felt like I'm in an even better shape, um, especially after the World Championship in Bern, where I felt really good. Um, but still, obviously, I, I didn't know. Um, but yeah, I get, get this question a lot if I felt like really pressured or anything, but uh, I, I didn't really think so. I mean, obviously, there were like one or two things that were a bit different than normally. Like uh, I would say the the weirdest thing about it was kind of that I have a certain schedule when I would enter the route, like 
approximately. Like usually when you climb outside, you're just like going with the flow and whenever you feel like it, you're going to do your try, right? But this way, I wanted to announce it a little bit beforehand so I, people could actually know it, plan it, and tune in. And uh, that was maybe a bit weird at first, but I got used to it. And in terms of the climb itself, I remember like the first and second try, I was a bit nervous at the start of the route. Like uh, after the 7A part, like quite low down, there's already a, a weird boulder problem where I never felt before, but then just the, the day before I started doing the live streams, I fell there twice. And that kind of made me nervous because all I wanted to do is at least do a good try, you know, like show the people that I'm actually like having a chance on this route. And uh, I'm not just like doing a random live stream and I, I'd only, I don't even get halfway up. So I remember on the first two tries, I kind of like, overpowered that first boulder problem, maybe spend a little bit more power than I should have. Um, but especially the higher up I get, especially in the crux part or in the hard part, uh, in the, in the upper, uh, in the upper section, um, I'm so, so focused that I basically completely forget that there is a live stream or anything. And it didn't really matter to me. And especially after the first few live streams, I saw that the community, I mean, basically didn't even care if I would send or not, because they were just really psyched being part of the process. And that gave me, yeah, so much motivation and also, um, and uh, that was amazing. How many people tuned in to watch that? Uh, I think like, especially with the first live stream, we were already really happy because I think are already around like um, 3,000, 2,500 people tuned in. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure with all the numbers because it like fluctuated, right? There's like the number of the total amount of viewers. Then right. there's the amount of like peak viewers, but it was usually something between like three or 4,000, I think. That's the thing with the first live stream. I didn't know, like maybe there would just be a hundred or something, you know? So I was really happy how it uh, turned out. And also so many people watched the videos afterwards and the, the videos got a lot of uh, views immediately. So um, we were really happy how it turned out. Hi, and another just quick uh, technical question. How many people did that require to put together? Like how many production people were there doing, working on that? There were uh, three camera guy, or three guys on the production team, yeah. Okay. So there was one um, on the tripod and also managing like which picture we would show, kind of like the boss of the whole team. One on the rope for like also the upper section and one flying the drone. I have to imagine that your background as a competition climber and having that performance mindset where you're, you're kind of performing in front of crowds and you're performing in front of live streams and stuff on, in World Cups and so forth. Did it feel like you were just kind of right at home? in a sense, because you've had so much experience in, in the comp world? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Like I could see that, that maybe for some other, or uh, some climbers that never really do comps or don't really ha ever feel that kind of pressure, it might be a bit more weird. And for me, it felt probably more natural, um, I would say so. But in general, yeah, like I said, I think the live stream, it didn't really change much like how I tried to send Project Big, basically. Like if there was no live stream, I would have done the exact same thing I was there. Like I said, maybe I would have done my tries sometimes like a few minutes differently or whatever, uh, but basically it would have been the same because um, uh, a lot of us, like the the top climbers, I mean, we're so ambitious, obviously, right? And I'm going to Flat Hunger and I have this huge goal of sending Project Big and it already feels kind of like, 
I'm climbing the Olympic Games every day because I really, really want to send this route and I do everything I can to send this route. And the live stream doesn't really change it. It's just uh, a good thing that I'm also able to uh, show it to all the other people that are psyched about climbing. And if I uh, bring joy to anyone else or get someone psyched to uh, for his project, then uh, that's just a, a great benefit of all, all these things. Can I ask you a little bit about this, the place? It's just this really unique thing, you know, that popped on our radar however many years ago. No one would have guessed that the next hot spot at the time was going to be out in the middle of nowhere in Norway. It kind of replaced Oleana, I think, in the minds of everybody as being like the next hard venue. And it's just so unique. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that place, uh, what it's like to climb there, and then also maybe what its characteristics that have lent itself to, to do providing these really hard routes, you know, obviously silence was maybe the thing that really put it on the map. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about the place and also maybe your connection to it. Is it a inspiring zone for you? Yeah, I think Flatunger is definitely one of, or maybe even the best hard sport climbing crack in the world. It's just uh, a crazy place. And once you're there for the first time and you see the cave from kind of afar, because you can already see it from quite a far, far away, it's just mind blowing and you, uh, yeah, you're just out of your mind that this actually exists in the world. First of all, it's a very beautiful place, like kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's really in the heart of nature, basically, right? Which, I mean, all of us basically live in the city nowadays, or a lot of us, and uh, you're not really used to it. Like, there's not a lot of houses, not a lot of streets, um, and uh, you have all these fjords and the sea, and uh, it's just very beautiful and peaceful. Um, uh, but yeah, the climbing itself is, is also just mind-blowing. Uh, it's this huge cave, and the best thing about it is... The rock and the rock quality, it's uh, nice or granite. So it's very, very solid. There is no other place on earth with so many hard roots that are all natural. It's crazy. Like it's fully natural. Nothing breaks except like that one halt <laughs> I had on my, uh, that broke on my sand try, but usually nothing really breaks. Everything is solid. The rock shape is just amazing. It's very good on your skin. Um, but obviously it's, it's a bit special in style because it's very steep. Um, you usually climb on pretty good holds, but it's very steep and long. Um, but uh, the rock quality and the lines it has and how huge it is, it just makes it this amazing place. And obviously also people helped developing this place and making it famous, obviously. Like uh, for sure, Adam has a huge part in this. Like you said, um, he did silence, but he also bolted and established a lot of hard routes there and kind of put it on the map. I mean, he was not the first person to bolt there. So obviously also other people did a huge part. Um, uh, also Magnus Midbø or Jörg Verhofen and also Norwegian locals. But I think now nowadays everyone knows it's it's a place you, you have to go at some point. I, I got to uh, climb there once a few years ago. And the thing that really struck me um, was just how disorienting it is to stare up at the at this cave from for the first time and it's really hard to see lines i mean they're not obvious right away at least you kind of have to spend not some all time of them yeah it's interesting to me to just how the vision of the, the 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 people who have been bolting there and how they've decided which where you know the roots go but i'd love to hear the history behind project big well yeah if it's like the history of the whole cave and all the roots um we got to call Adam, I think, because he's like the expert, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, 
But yeah, I mean, I think some of the lines are kind of obvious and you can see there's still also quite a lot of um, entries. Like luckily, uh, there is not too many crazy um, link-ups because I'm really not a big fan of it. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, sometimes obviously you have like a few same starts and different routes have different exits. Um, and yeah, Project Big, I forgot the exact uh, year, but it was bolted at the same time as like Silence, basically. Adam bolted both of those routes, probably like already eight years or something like that. I'm not sure. Uh, or 10 years. Back then, he was, or that's at least what he was saying. He was kind of like intimidated, but trying Project Big just because it's such a huge line and uh, you have to put so much effort into actually like getting all the beta. And he focused on Silence first. So it was Silence was his his project hard and project big was the other one. I guess he spent so much time on silence that he was kind of sick of Flatanger for a while or didn't want to spend too much time there again. Um, and then at some point he uh, talked to me and said like, yeah, there's still this amazing project in Flatanger that he wants to try. And I was, if I was uh, keen to try it with him and uh, that was like uh, an amazing invitation that I couldn't resist. And that's basically how we started trying the route. Um, Last year, uh, it was the first time I went there together with him. He was already trying it for like a week or 10 days when I came. And obviously for me, the whole process was much easier than like some other, like some real first ascent sometimes, right? Because I had like this huge joker called Adam Andra, who <laughs> already had like a lot of, like most of the beta. And obviously we refined it and I found a few new tricks. So I think I also helped him. And together as a team, we like got the beta and all, um, yeah, uh, so many things worked out really quickly. We talked so much about strategy and tactics on this route. And like without him, I would have never been able to send this route, especially not in this time frame. And yeah, I'm sure he's going to do the second ascent pretty soon. Yeah, but he got injured, also known as having a child. So, um, <laughs> you know, kind of set him back a little bit. Um, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's interesting to listen to you talk about this partnership that you forged with Adam. And, you know, from people maybe outside of the comp world looking in, we'd wonder if you, you know, would have rivalries. You certainly were direct rivals in, you know, the Olympics and, and at comps elsewhere. But, you know, how common is that within, the, the comp world to be um, close, you know, and work together with, with your rivals. Is that, is that more commonplace than not, do you think? Or was that a special relationship you had with, or you have with Adam? I mean, I think both things. So I think it's very common indeed. Like, uh, I don't think there is any rivalries at all, especially for uh, the male category. I can't really talk for the woman as much, but for um, the man, I did make quite a lot of finals and quite a lot of competitions in my past. And uh, it has always been like a really nice atmosphere. And basically I'm really good friends with all the other top competitors. Um, uh, uh, and that's also the amazing thing about climbing. I think the thing is, you know, we're not really different than all the other climbers. Like how do climbers grow up and how do they get better? It's usually climbing together right uh although it's it's a single sport in the end on the competitions it always feels kind of like a team sport or a very social sport to me uh like uh whenever you go bouldering it's the coolest and most fun way to do it with your four buddies and that's also the most efficient way that's usually your best sessions where you 
are the most motivated, have the most fun, but also you get way better because you learn from each other. Um, you're able to send all the boulders way faster because everyone is figuring out beta together. And that's how we all we are all growing up, I think, um, starting young. And um, we can't really get away from that, right? So we're still like that now being 20 or 30 years old at the comps. And I think that's uh, everyone respects that we're basically climbing against the roots and the boulders and whoever is strongest on them deserves to win. And that's, that's how it goes, but we're not really climbing against each other. That's very feel good. But I, you know, I would, I want, I wanted to get the story of the one guy that you stare at while they're climbing and want him to fall off but you're just you're just too nice a guy for that so i'll, I'll move on yeah i mean obviously i mean i mean in, at the end of the day it's a competition and you want to win and if someone has a bad day and can't really climb as well as he could and you're the winner i mean you kind of feel bad for the guy but at the same time you're going to celebrate sure. of course i mean that's that's how it is right uh, I think we're all friends and we often also train together. Like uh, I have a lot of also international climbers that I train with in, in Innsbruck. It's like a gym that so many people come to. So I often also train there with like Alberto Chinas Lopez, for example, or Alex Magos or many people come and we train together and try to improve together. And um, obviously we do the same thing outside. Like I said, it just makes the thing so much easier, right? Like if I imagine trying Project Big without Adam, it would have been a completely different process. I think you buck the trend or the stereotype about comp climbers never climbing outside. And you, you actually do quite a bit of climbing outside. Is it fair to say that you're slightly different than some of your comp climbing peers in that regard? Nowadays, there's definitely already more full comp climbers than maybe back in the day. I think when I grew up, it was even more natural to be just both a rock climber and a comp climber. Also, my coaches, when I grew up, they always wanted us to also go outside and um, improve our climbing that way, which I think is very important. But yeah, there is still a lot of climbers nowadays that do comps and climb outside. I mean, like, yeah, Adam or Stefano Gisolfi, Alexander Magos, uh, Sean Bailey, or there's, there's a lot some of them leave the comp scene to just climb outside like Will Bosey, but uh, a lot still try to combine both things. And obviously there's also the others that only do comps. I think a lot of them are also Japanese climbers, right? They don't really have the same options as uh, us Europeans or the Americans with a lot of rock climbs. And a lot of them grow up in Tokyo and grow up in the gym and um it's uh, a bit more difficult to actually get the entrance into rock climbing, but I hope uh, it will be a lot more again in the future. And I mean, yeah, for me, it's it's just the way of life. I would say, like, uh, um, I couldn't couldn't do it with without any of the two. Uh, I just I really enjoy doing competitions, but I enjoy even more climbing outside, especially over the last few years. And what I'm doing, like the way I'm doing it right now, is just um, optimal for me. Like focusing on a few competitions a year, but also still have time for my big projects outside. So I don't think I will ever do like a full World Cup season anymore. Um, but it's very fun to focus on a few, try to get really strong for the comp and then take that shape and go outside and try to destroy everything out there as well. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so, you know, we talked about how you're one of the most decorated comp climbers out there, maybe the or among men. I'm not sure the the qualifiers. It doesn't really matter. But obviously, your 
you know, one of the strongest, but it occurred to me that someone in that position's mental game has to be on point and, and, and extremely um, strong as well. When you were, you know, starting to get a lot of success, starting to string some of these gold medals together, these podiums, did that feel like it brought more pressure in the sense that like, oh, I, I got to keep this, I got to keep these streaks alive, you know, staying on top or, you know, having a lot of success, does it help you relax in, in the sense that like, well, I've had some success, whatever happens now can happen. Wh- which side of that do you think you fall on or, or is it somewhere in between? And, and also maybe comment on, on your, you know, your mental game and how you deal with whatever pressures you feel as a competitor. I mean, for me, it was very important that uh, I already did quite a few competitions as a youth climber. And I think it was good for me that I was already really successful as a youth climber. And because uh, you already kind of grow up uh, learning how to deal with pressure in a different way. Because uh, basically, like, yeah, when you do a youth world championship and people expect you to win the youth world championship, it's already the pressure that you will feel later on, just on a much smaller scale obviously there's not as much uh media or whatever um attention on it um but it's it definitely already helped me to uh understand how to deal with those things being young but then whenever you like enter the next step i think the first few competitions are basically easy like you like you said like doing your first world cup and people not expecting you to win those are like mentally the easy competitions. Like whenever you do win your first World Cup, that's amazing. But then actually winning a lot of more World Cups once people expect you to win them. Yeah, that's a completely different game, I would say. And that's when the mental game basically kicks in. So yeah, obviously winning your winning the first World Championship was probably easier than winning the second or the third. Um, but then at the same time, it also helps you just because you gain so much confidence over the years, right? Like uh, I've had so many big events in my life already where I performed really well that I really learned um, to trust myself because I know from experience, hey, hey, guy, man, you got this. You, you always perform at what champs like it can't go wrong. You remember all the world champs? Oh yeah. And, and you know, that really helps also like having this confidence in yourself that it went so well already many times in your career. So I would say it's definitely both things. Like obviously the bigger the comp gets, the more successful you are. For example, the Olympic games, definitely the Olympic games were the hardest for Tomoa, Adam and myself, I would say like, uh, because we were kind of the favorites to win a medal and uh, it's the biggest competition that we have ever had. And uh, it's very different because there's even more media attention than on any other comp. Uh, you get a lot of pressure also outside of your country, from media, from everyone, and everyone expects you to win a medal for your country. And um, performing with this kind of pressure is very different than performing when no one expects anything from you. But at the same time, it makes it even more rewarding if you're actually able to do it, right? So uh, there's like always two sides. Are you ever um, in a position to sort of help uh, other climbers with this this mental game? I mean, in, in some ways, uh, as funny as it may sound, you're like getting at the older end of, of being a comp climber. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in all levels of climbing, we see people who are clearly stronger than us. And maybe that's maybe that's not a problem you have, but I, I definitely do. <laughs> But but if for some reason they they can't quite achieve what we're achieving, 
you know, and that even happens to me um, at my sort of fledgling level of climbing. But, you know, and, and that is like this thing in your head where you're saying, okay, that, that person has these tools, they're, they're strong and they're a really good climber, but they're obviously falling short on their, their mental game of, of how to top out these boulders or these roots or, or mm. you know, put up with the pressure. Are you ever in a position where, where you feel comfortable approaching younger climbers with some advice like that? Because that, that seems to be really your earned place when, when you've reached the level you have as being, you know, the wise old guy, I guess, <laughs> in the cop scene. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, obviously, um, I, I think I've, I haven't um, perfected the way of like the mental game. Uh, you can't perfect it. And I still think uh, there is a lot to learn for myself as well. That's so exciting also about climbing there's always things you can improve on but uh i do think um especially when it comes down to the mental game at like the very important competitions um i've done a pretty good job uh in my past and uh i have a few tips for younger climbers but obviously uh it's still difficult because every mind works differently and um some things that work really well for me might not really work well for another person you can only um yeah Tell them your story, I feel like. Tell them what works for you. And they still have to figure out their own way at, at some point. Um, but uh, I definitely try to help um, younger climbers, um, my friends, my my teammates. And uh, yeah, like I said before, um, I'm training with so many other climbers. I'm not the only guy. Like all us climbers, we are all sharing a lot of things together and uh, trying to learn from each other. I wouldn't be the climber that I am now if there weren't so many other strong climbers that I was able to learn from, whether it be yeah, how to train, how to climb, how to climb more efficiently, and also the mental game, which is sometimes really interesting because there's so many different aspects, right? Like performing in Project Big or a climb outside, performing in Elite Route uh, on the big stage, but then also performing in boulders, which can be completely different. And then also can be completely different from round to round, like a round where you enter and you flash immediately and you're having a good run. Those are the easy rounds. And then you have the round where you have to come from behind. You're like uh, having a terrible round and have to stop your head from getting super frustrated. There's like endless things to learn and uh, endless things that we talk about over and over again when we're like uh, us athletes together. And uh, I definitely hope that I've already helped quite a few people. Innsbruck is kind of globally recognized as being like this powerhouse of churning out, you know, high level climbers and talent. I mean, like over here in the U S we have barely figured out how to give proper belay tests in our gyms, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) the, uh, the Innsbruck scene is, is a a cut above. Um, so why don't you tell us about what kind of, uh, just think back to your upbringing and kind of being on teams and stuff and coaches and how rigorous was that schedule? And yeah, just give us a sense of what that was like coming up in that scene. So, yeah, I mean, I think Innsbruck has always been a little famous for its climbing scene or at least for like already more than 20 or around 20 years now. Um, but obviously now it's even more famous because of the really big gym that we have for I think now it's uh, already a bit more than five years or almost six years that we have the the big new gym. I think it's 
probably the best lead climbing gym in the world and also a very good bouldering gym. And what makes it very special is also that our national team has its team center there. And that's why uh, out of our federation sends a lot of um, very good route setters there to set hard routes and boulders for us. So, um, so many strong athletes love to come to Innsbruck to train. Um, but it was a bit different back then when I started. We had like this way smaller gym back then in Innsbruck, uh, which was still, when I started climbing, one of the better gyms in the world. It's just climbing exploded in the last 20 years. And if I would walk in into that gym now, it doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. I would kind of laugh because nowadays it's like it would be a terrible gym, right? But 20 years ago, it was still a pretty good gym. And uh, I really grew into this amazing team. And I think it was also a big factor how I was able to be successful because there were so many very strong athletes around me already when I started climbing. Like uh, my my age was David Lama, uh, like one of the craziest climbing talents ever. Um, uh, but then there were also other strong people that were already winning World Cups, like Kilian Fischu, uh, Anastasia, uh, Angela Aita, uh, Jörg Verhoeven, like so many people around me winning World Cups. And that really helps a young climber to um, to gain confidence, to get better, to learn from others. And um, obviously, there were also really psyched and good coaches um, that uh, I have to thank a lot for. Back then, it was not normal that a, a coach in climbing would be a professional coach. So they had their jobs, but they were just so psyched about climbing that it would still take their time and uh, train us kids. And uh, I, I learned a lot from those coaches, especially Reini Schera, who was uh, my coach back then. And uh, yeah, that's how I basically grew up. I was also lucky that I had like this few friends um, that started climbing basically with me. Like they weren't friends beforehand, but like I got to know them while climbing. They were these boys my age and we were just this crew of five, like 14 year olds, just training together, pushing each other and um, getting strong together. And uh, yeah, it, in the end, I feel like it was one of the best formulas to get successful. Um, I want to switch uh, topics and go back to outdoor climbing real quick. Um, just looking through some of the hardest routes that you've done, I, I happen to notice that it seems like a lot of them are Chris Sharma routes. And um, or at least well, because a, a lot of hard routes are Krishama routes. Well, that's true. <laughs> I was gonna. I was just curious if there is any um, any if you were just drawn to Sharma routes in particular. Or is it just is it literally just as simple as Chris has been putting up the hardest routes, and so that's it's only natural that you'd be climbing in his footsteps. It's kind of a coincidence that most of them or a lot. It's not like I only did Krishama routes, but I've done quite a lot of uh, Krishama routes um, or a coincidence, not the right word, but uh, it's more where they are than from who they were. Uh, I would say uh, he just developed so many hard routes in Spain. It's quite easy to travel to from Austria. And uh, um, I've started traveling to Spain when I was 16 years old. And uh, it, I, it, kind of stuck with me like I really loved my first trip and basically I would do a trip to Spain almost every year uh, since then like maybe a bit less over the last few years now but before that I would always go to Spain because there were so many hard routes because Chris was such such a legend or is, is such a legend and developed so many hard routes over there right like uh, whether it be Oleana, Santalina, Siorana, Margalef, so many different cracks actually also very different climbing and uh, a lot of hard routes. So I always love to travel there and um, uh, choose a new project. And um, yeah, Chris just built up something amazing over there. 
still nowadays i even more so love to climb in places like flatanga where the rock quality is just even better right um something that you definitely have to say is that not all of the routes that are established in spain are fully natural or most of them actually have some Sika on it or something. It's not as natural as something like in Flatanga, but nevertheless, there are routes that are really amazing to climb on. And I think one of my favorite ones was definitely Perfecto Mundo in Margalef. Uh It's just a really fun route to try. And um, yeah, uh, it's it's really cool to think back of all the memories of all those hard routes uh, that I've done in Spain. Like uh, I did my first 9B there in Oleana with Fight or Flight. I did my first 9B plus with Perfecto Mundo in Margalef and uh, just a lot of amazing trips. So kind of more at the base of that question, and I've wondered this about a lot of top end climbers now, um, looking back again on on this this uh chris sharma person like to put it succinctly like do you do you guys or you ever like wonder just like what's up with that guy like how did he do that like you were talking about like how 20 years ago your gym in innsbruck would look ridiculous now i mean he was even before that so it's like there Mm -hmm. wasn't the training or the opportunities and yet he still kind of set the world on fire and um and and as he scolded me when i interviewed him he is not done um, yeah, you know, I wanted. I was like talking about. Like, I, I want to check out Sleeping like, Lion soon. <laughs> yeah. So have you ever like just contemplated like what's up with that guy? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, when I grew up with climbing, Chris was already a legend, basically, right? So uh, I'm, I'm just this one generation after him, I would say. So obviously, he was already kind of like a hero for all of us climbers. And uh, just while I was basically growing up as a climber, he would establish route after route every year and like andrew said like it gave me the possibility to go to spain and go back to spain and go back to spain because there would always be a new route to try for me and uh yeah it's the vision that he had and the motivation uh it was just uh amazing and i think yeah it's what impresses me the most almost is that he's still on such a high level and uh he still climbs so hard and establishes these new routes um like the things that i also fell in love with uh, were the deep water solar routes that it that he established in mallorca uh it's a discipline that i really love and uh, i already talked to him that we want to go try some routes together at some point so i hope uh, in the future i can also spend some time with chris in mallorca and try some hard deep water solar projects yeah you did espontas which um a lot of people think about it just comes down to that one dyno, but I've heard the upper part is quite uh, bouldery and you're, you're, you know, you're 50 feet above the water at that point. So was, was that difficult mentally to, to get that one done? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was definitely the big crux was the dyno. Like I, I mostly struggled at the dyno and the upper part is still definitely hard. Like uh, all the other people that have sent the route, I think fell quite a few times or even many, many times uh, at the upper part. I was lucky enough that I got it dialed uh, well enough that once I stuck the dyno, I was also able to send the route. Yeah, for me, it was more the mind game of sticking the dyno, I have to say. Uh, It's just a very hard move. And uh, obviously, you can't really try it out. (laughs) Like You always have to climb up there, try the dyno, fall into the water. And uh, it's really hard to analyze and uh, find the mistake that you're making, like finding out how to actually hold the hold that you're jumping to. Um, So it took me, I think, 30 tries to actually stick the dyno, which... um, is quite a lot because you're not doing that many tries a day. I think it was like four or five tries a day. And yeah, I think once you stick the dyno, the route is still 
at least like eight C to the top. Um, and then it comes down to, uh, yeah, your endurance and whether or not you can climb eight C easily enough. The easier part also about the, the upper section, starting from the corners that you can try this part on the rope. Uh, so the jump, you can't really get there with the rope, so you can never try it. But the upper section, you mm-hmm. can upside down and try it, which uh, what everyone did um, when they sent this route. So that obviously helps also to get away uh, the fear once you're like a bit higher up. There, there's been these like historical canvases that have, have been out there for, you know, people like Chris, I mean, all of Spain in some ways, but, but more, uh, the deep water soloing is sort of his, been his, his kind of creative canvas. And we talked about how Adam Andra, you know, was such this developer and Flattinger. Is that a, something that you would dream about, or, or maybe you even have whispers about is finding a canvas for yourself. That's uh, a little more open you know, ready to be developed out there in the world. I mean, it's getting harder and harder to find in some ways, but, you know, I'm sure you're probably on the lookout. Is that, you know, something that you, that would excite you is finding a canvas for um, Jakob Schubert to sort of leave a big mark like like those canvases did for those guys? Yeah, I mean, yes and yes and no. I mean, I, I, I just really, really love climbing. And uh, if it's a repetition of something, um, it still means a lot to me, you know, because... Uh, also repeating Espontas or um, some other routes is probably almost just as much fun. It might not get as much attention as like a first ascent, but it's climbing wise, it's just uh, amazing. But obviously it would be cool to uh, find your own things, like uh, find a new route, find a new um, place, a new crack, something like that. It's obviously also something you have to put a lot of time and effort into, um, but it's definitely something I would love to do a bit more in the future. Uh, also, when it comes down to bolting, uh, I've also established uh, actually a new route in Austria just lately. Um, so I think I've already done a bit more than in the past, um, but it's definitely something I would love to do a bit more in the future. Um, like also when we talk about deep water soloing, I think that's a discipline that I really love. And it's also a discipline where there's still so much potential in the world because it's really hasn't been done enough i think um i mean already in mallorca there is still a lot of potential but there has to be like so much potential left in the whole world right um and it would be amazing to find some new lines in the future um I'm po- apologies that i don't know this but are you going to the olympics in the 2024 yes i am yeah. yeah so let's talk about uh that for a minute so are there any um, up and coming climbers who you've been noticing who are you're kind of on the lookout for maybe being contenders in the next Olympics? Like it seems like there's new new names and faces that I don't I always feel new to me that just go out there and crush a, a competition or two. So are there any dark horses yeah. or people coming up that have you uh, concerned for taking your your spot on the podium in, uh, <laughs> in the Olympics? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I wouldn't call them dark horses anymore, but they're like two very young climbers that already kind of like dominated the season this year. And I think are already the favorites to do really well at the Olympics. The first one being uh, Anraku Sorato from Japan. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if he turned 17 now, but in Bern he was 16 and I was 32. So it was twice his age. And uh, <laughs> he's just uh, an amazing climate and amazing talent. I think he's someone we can expect so much from in the future. I really hope that uh, we can all get him psyched to climb outside as well. Cause uh, yeah, he will be 
uh, just an amazing climber. I mean, he's already an amazing climber, but he will be an even better climber one day. And uh, there's a lot he can do. And I think he will be one of the big favorites for the Olympics, definitely. And um, I'm trying to work my ass off that I can uh, compete with him next year. <laughs> um, and the other one is uh, Toby Roberts from uh, from the UK, who also basically had his break point this year. Like he, they both kind of came out of nowhere this year, I would say. I mean, Serato being so young that obviously we couldn't see him before. And Toby just made this crazy huge step. I don't know uh, how <laughs> and did so well this year as well. Um, I mean, maybe not as much uh, in Bern like people expected him to. But now in Laval uh, at the European qualifier, he showed again that he's in a crazy shape and he's a fantastically climber and also really good in bouldering. So I think he's also a big favorite for next year and it will be really exciting with all the, the new young climbers doing so well. And uh, also the old guns still trying hard. <laughs> yeah, that'll be a good narrative. It's funny <laughs> when you said something about uh, what was the Japanese climber's name, but he, uh, yeah. yeah, him hopefully starting to climb out outside. I was like, I imagined you as sort of a drug dealer, like, <laughs> Yeah. Hey kid, hey, kid, come over here. Check out this yeah. boulder outside for a second. Exactly. <laughs> See if uh, you can get him hooked. That's how we are. Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to get Yanya a lot more psyched to climb outside, but it's not as right easy. On. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's got some time. Yeah. Comp climbing is uh, one of these things that everyone has some critique about, like whether it's the setting or the format or every, it's like rife for just kind of criticism or just imagining ways in which it can improve. Um, what's your, what's your take on comp climbing just from a, you know, a 30,000 foot view, you know, a big picture view, uh, what do you think, uh, could improve? Is it purse size? Is it format changes? Like you, if you were in charge mm. and you had a magic wand, what would you change about, <laughs> about comp climbing? Oh yeah, that's difficult. I mean, I think in general, we climbers, we really like to complain, right? Not even just about comps, but also about rocks. I mean, that's what like in rock climbing, have you ever climbed in perfect conditions? It's impossible, right? <laughs> Either your skin is too dry or it's too sweaty. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's never, it's never perfect. It's, there's always something we can complain about. And, uh, that's kind of like part of our sport. We just, yeah. yeah, try to keep it down at some point. And that's the same also in comps. I mean, there's always something you can complain about, like whether it be root setting or the wall or whatever. Um, but yeah, in general, I mean, obviously, uh, I've done so many competitions in my life and uh, I've only done it because I love it. And uh, I, it's not just um, doing competitions that I like. It's also training hard for competitions, which I love. Um, it just gives you this goal, this motivation to really train hard and try to improve as a climber and then do well at the competition. It's also about traveling to places, traveling with friends, your team, being on the road. Uh, it's something I grew up with and I still can't live without. And um, I mean, obviously, uh, as an, a very ambitious person, if you want to show yourself and the world that you're one of the best or the best climber, you got to do competitions because outside you will never have the same. Um, yeah, it's not not the same outside. Like it's different conditions. It's um, uh, yeah, there's so many different aspects where it's harder to actually see who is better. And uh, the easiest way is obviously doing a competition. And that's that's also the cool cool thing, um, just trying to compete with others, not against others, but with others and seeing who is, who is better and learning from each other and getting better. But uh, yeah, I think the competitions have already 
gotten way, way better over the years. I mean, we have even more amazing events nowadays than back in the day uh, with uh, thousands of spectators. Uh, It's just growing and growing and um, there's still things to improve on, definitely. Um, uh, Like, I think one main thing I would would love to see is uh, being it more on TV or again, easily, more easily available to people to watch. It's just kind of sad for me to see um, a world championship in Bern and a lot of people not really getting uh, an easy option to watch the world championship because um, it's the rights, for example, are sold to Eurosport, but then Eurosport is not actually showing it, which is kind of weird to me, um, only on the player, like something like that. I would definitely like to change. And uh when it, yeah, root setting, uh, obviously that's always something uh, that's, we could do like a different podcast about root setting because uh, you can always talk a lot about it. But um, especially in bouldering, I would definitely, I, I'm always the one of those guys that would love a bit more old school climbing um, and less about the crazy new school, you know. I think at some competitions, we already have a good mix, but at others, some root setters kind of fail to set a lot of like fitness style. And sometimes it's not even up to the root setters, but the walls are not very, very good. Like if I look about the European qualifier in Laval, we had a bouldering wall where the steepest wall was 20 degrees overhang. I mean, that's just crazy to me, like 20 degree overhang and you want to see the best climbers in the world. Um, I mean, we can all climb on 45 degree overhang or even steeper. Uh, and uh, it's also something that should be part of a comp. So I think there's still things um, you can work on, you can improve on to make it a more fair playing ground. Um, but overall, uh, I love competitions and uh, I think they're here to stay. You know, we're over here in the USA and, and Andrew made made a joke about our, uh, the level of our gym quality here, but it's always fascinating to look into the comp world that's in in Europe, and I would assume it's probably similar coming out of a place like Japan. But the the level of celebrity that you can achieve, the the level of you know just financial security you can achieve as a comp climber is you know just vastly different than what we see here in the states. And and how has that been for you? As you know, you mentioned being a fourteen year old kid with your posse. You know, back in the day, just dreaming of whatever, you know, sending that next problem, not looking to the future of of whatever you have become now. Um, How has that sat with you becoming, you know, some level of celebrity, certainly not like Hollywood level, but um, but what what you, you know, deal with in coming out of a place like Innsbruck and Austria being the best of the best comes with a lot of perks, but also, you know, whatever else kind of dark side comes with celebrity. Um, Maybe there isn't one for you, but how is your personality? Um, leveled into to being, you know, someone whose time is is sought after, like we're doing today, and you know, recognized here and there, and and having to do appearances and all these sorts of things that come with being a celebrity at your level. How has that felt to you over the years? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, as a climber, you're never a crazy celebrity, right? Uh, I mean, obviously, if I go to a place like Arco, a lot of people will notice me, but um, uh, not in like a big city like Tokyo or whatever. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they don't scream as you get off the airplane. Yeah, exactly. You know, like their hands in the air. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think um, the good thing is, as a climber, it will never get that extreme, which is probably a good thing. And also, yeah, I think it's also something. I was able to grow up with probably was 
maybe also easier growing up for me because I wasn't really the star one the first few years when I was climbing. Like I would, like I said, I would win youth world championships and maybe I would even like win my first World Cup being 18. And I would still not be the star because there would be others around me that would win way, way more. And uh, so that was probably pretty good for me, just uh, being able to be in the shadow for a bit and then kind of like slowly breaking out of it um, and just um, learning to cope with all all those things. And obviously, the older you get, the more mature you get, the, the better of an understanding understanding you also get for all those things like uh yeah like doing this podcast or also that it's not um that climbing is my life my hobby the thing i love to do but also my job and obviously nowadays um there's also some other things that uh, i have to do or manage which is not climbing um uh, if you want to make money with it and also um, manage your brand obviously and uh that's that's something i think you learn with the years um, and, uh, I've always felt it pretty easy being a celebrity, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, because I think the amazing thing about being a celebrity as a sportsman is that you're always in contact with positive emotions, right? Like if I think about uh, a politician or maybe even like, uh, yeah, maybe even like a star in like a, a really, really big sport, you also get a lot of negative uh, things from people as a climber. I mean, it's all, also our community is amazing, but uh, whenever someone notices me, it's always positive. It's like, hey, you're Jacob and like, well, can I take a picture and, and amazing what you're doing? All those things, right? And that's actually rewarding and it's a it's a, a cool thing and that's also the way i see it and uh i feel sorry for like yeah politicians that have it like the other way around because then it must be way tougher <laughs> um on a scale from sad to devastated where do you fall in terms of not having to do uh speed climbing in the next olympics <laughs> yeah definitely devastated <laughs> no but actually like honestly i i did enjoy um training for speed climbing it it's just i really sucked at it so obviously it was not as much fun because uh, you just prefer doing things that you are actually good at but uh it was still fun uh, i'm like a very analytical person so speed training was kind of fun because it's very analytical right you're always doing the same route you're seeing people on the same route there's so much analysis that you can do to try to get better and um uh, i kind of enjoyed that process but uh obviously i was really happy once i knew i wouldn't have to do it anymore mostly just because training all three disciplines was just um too much for my old body <laughs> or my already kind of old body um i remember i would just get some problems in my elbow and everywhere because it's also a discipline that I've, i haven't really grown up with and uh, my body didn't really know how to handle it's interesting because it was such a you know you're talking about complaining climbers complaining and that was you know that was just de jour uh for months before the last olympics um but i didn't realize until the olympics happened just how much it screwed the the actual really good speed climbers you know the the world famous around the world speed climbers which is such a big discipline in, in a lot of different countries and so it's to me i'm i'm actually quite excited to see the di- the speed discipline become what it should have been, um, which is the best speed climbers competing um, at a level that I don't think you know 
no offense, any of you guys could even sniff, you know, you couldn't For even sure. come close. Yeah. So to me, it's like, wow, that's, I think it's going to be a pretty interesting event now um after you know after we shit on it for three or four months <laughs> leading up to the last olympics so uh, i don't know if you feel that way as well but to see the actual speed climbers perform at the level oh, yeah. they're supposed to is going to be awesome definitely i mean i i really enjoy watching uh speed comps uh, we often have world cups where there's also speed world cup and i really enjoy watching it it's just crazy how fast those people are right and i mean you just have to accept that uh speed climbing is a very very different to a difficulty climbing right to whether it be bouldering or lead um i see it as like a mix of climbing and athletics it's it's almost like a different sport sometimes but it's still a very cool sport and a, a sport that is amazing to watch and uh um i'm very happy for the speed climbers that they got their own set of medals for the olympics because yeah it was just a chaos at Tokyo and um, I wish also for the lead and boulder specialists that uh, one day we 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 all get our medals, you know, because uh, I think obviously this combined is a much better option than the one in Tokyo, like you said, especially for the speed climbers, but also for the difficulty climbers because speed is just so different and it really doesn't make sense to train speed as a boulder or a lead climber, in my opinion. So it's a way better option, but it's still not the best option, I would say, because uh, in my opinion, a combined will never make perfect sense in climbing. Um, I love that so many people almost have to do lead and boulder now, because I think if you want to be the best climber, you have to be a good boulder and a lead climber. It's They are both part of the game. And I, I've always wanted to be um, on the top of the game in both of them. But the problem is that you can't really count them together, you know? It's not a triathlon or uh, a decathlon at athletics where it's really easy to do it with points or whatever. Uh, it's basically impossible to do it in a very fair way. And that's why I hope at some point we also get our set of free medals at the Olympics. Well, when we sign off, I'll be sending my petition over to you to sign for the aid climbing medal um, as well. So I'm oh, hoping yeah. I can, I can, hoping I can get your support. I've never tried that. that, but it's going to be the most boring of all <laughs> Olympic events ever. But um, anyway, I think I think there's going to be a big following for it. So I'll send that over as soon as we're done. Are there more live streams? You know, send attempts in the future. Do you think you're going to keep doing that? I mean, there is no obvious plan for it for now. Um, like I said, it also kind of depends um, which route I'm trying or where it is. Like uh, like I said, Project Big was just a really good route for those live streams. Um, uh, if I think about DNA, for example, it would be a lot harder because there's like terrible internet connection and uh, a lot of things that make it more difficult. But uh, obviously, um, seeing how it how well it worked, I would really love to do it again at some point. And I hope I can find a project where I feel like uh, it, it works quite well again. Obviously, it would be pretty easy to do it at boulders, something like uh, Elfane, but I think it wouldn't be as interesting. Like also the cool thing about BIG was that I would do this one try a day. Also, the, the try would be about 10, 15 minutes. So it's, it's, it, I feel like it was perfect. I didn't really think about it before, but somehow it worked really well, well right? In bouldering, you have like, I don't know, a try that's 20 seconds and then you're resting again for 30 minutes. It probably 
is like way more boring to watch. <laughs> <laughs> you could bring in like a like a um, you'd have some sort of entertainment. It'd be like the Super yeah. Bowl halftime exactly. thing. Like you bring in a juggler or something exactly, would be kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, that, yeah, so. yeah. Maybe maybe we have to think about, about something like that. Yeah, guy who spits fire. You know, one of those yeah. guys. Um, if you need some podcasters, hot, yeah. we we know a couple guys. Oh yeah, nice. Set up a little. We set up a little card table in front of the boulder and like yeah, do a, exactly. do a podcast. Do some bits. <laughs> um, you also just showed your cards, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, you did bring up DNA, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's definitely awesome. a route I want to try in the future, for sure. Um, all right, big picture future. Where, where do you see yourself in like 10, 15 years? Are, are you going to be... Are you hoping to still be competing? Are you going to just be climbing outside? Like, what do you? Where do you see your career? Are you going to start a YouTube channel like Magnus? Like, what do you do? What do you do? What's life after you know the peak, peak I mean, professionalism? So, first of all, I do have a YouTube channel already. All of you listeners, check it out. <laughs> Some self advertisement <laughs> right here, right here. I mean, that's how I live streamed uh, BIG as well, right? Um, uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm not really that kind of person that. Things I had that many years. Uh, basically, all I know is that I'm going to Paris uh, doing the Olympics, and then I will see. Like I, I'm not even sure what I'm doing afterwards. Uh, right now, I I think I will probably still keep doing exactly what I'm doing right now, just because I'm just as psyched and having just as much fun as like 20 years ago. So I don't really see a reason why I would ever stop doing that. And I think. There has to be a certain point where I'm not having as much fun or like, yeah, something else uh, changing in my life that I'm like changing all these uh, things. Um, but yeah, in 15 years, I will definitely not do comps anymore. That's like the only thing that I can say. <laughs> I, will definitely, I will definitely still climb. That's also something that I can say. Uh, probably, ho hopefully still kind of hard. Um, uh, so yeah, I think I will probably do a few more years of, of comps like I'm doing it right now, like more like focusing on certain big comps and still having time for my projects outside. Um, I'm not sure if I still have ambitions to go to Los Angeles for the next Olympics. That's something I'm not sure yet. Uh, obviously, it's only an option if we actually get the set of free medals. I think I won't be able to compete with the young climbers in the new school bouldering in a few years anymore. It's just too crazy of a sport nowadays. But I think in league climbing, I might be able to compete for a few more years. Who knows? So I think then it would still be an option at least. And uh, yeah, when it comes down to climbing outside, I will definitely want to do some hard climbing outside for many more years. And um, at some point, maybe also try to do some more big walls. Like I've never climbed in Yosemite and like, yeah, I feel like you have, you're not really, you're not a real climber if you have never climbed in Yosemite. So I'm still not a real climber. So I have to do that trip at some point, right? <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah, 50 gold medals, climber, but you're not a real gonna, climber. We're going to you... delete this interview now because we only interview real climbers. Sorry, Yoko. Oh, yeah. Um, Damn, yeah. <laughs> it's all for nothing now. Huh? <laughs> uh, one last question. Uh, what, what's the most interesting thing that uh, Jakob Schubert does in his free time? Or his non-climbing time. I don't know. I might be a boring person, but uh, I'm. <laughs> I'm not sure. No, I mean, uh, I really like. Like I said before, I'm like a very ambitious guy. Maybe a bit too ambitious sometimes. So 
when I already, like I put a lot of ambition in my climbing, but sometimes there is still quite a bit left. So then I come home and play some computer games. Like I do like to do some online gaming and just put some ambition into that as well, whether it be like uh, chess or some other like online game games. Um, I mean, chess could even be a sport, but I would say it's more like a game. And uh, yeah, I also like to do other sports, obviously, and I also like um, watching other sports. Uh, actually, you guys as Americans could can maybe understand me that I'm uh, an American football fan, actually. Like, I've never played that game my, in my life, but uh, I like re- I really like following it. Um, so who's maybe that's, that's something interesting about me, especially for Americans. <laughs> wow. Wh- who's your team? Uh, well, I'm not an American, so I don't really have a team. Okay. I would say like, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to have, like, I don't really have a big relationship to any of the teams. It's more that I like the teams that score a lot of points. Um, but usually like, uh, Cincinnati Bengals, I do like, although they're not doing that well this year, but hopefully Burrow and Chase can, can do a comeback. (laughs) So it's more about the players than the teams for me. That's awesome. I did not expect you to say that. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's either. that's why it's kind of interesting, I guess. <laughs> yeah, our dear lost friend Dave Pegg, who is uh, British, was a huge uh, American football fan. So nice. That's endearing yeah. to both Andrew and I. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been a football fan all my life, obviously. I mean, it's not that easy to get into as a European. Um, I think it's easier... Now, over like the last few years, it kind of like grew also in Europe. But yeah, I think like maybe like seven years ago or something, it started like before I was all like all the other boys just into soccer, football. But uh, then I switched my focus to American football. And now I'm even playing fantasy league, you know, (laughs) I'm full into it. Like you hear that? I know, I know know everything. (laughs) Let's get this guy a box, you know, with Taylor Swift at the next uh, KC oh, yeah. uh, game. Yeah, you know? I hope so, yeah. And if anybody at the NFL is list- listening, this guy needs a box. <laughs> I, do. Sure. I do. I <laughs> do. Do you ever find yourself falling into that same old trope that climbing has no meaning? That it's a useless, selfish game that helps no one? Well... On our latest Patreon bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, author and professor C.T. Nguyen sets up a philosophical top rope for us. Finally, concluding that climbing is one of the ultimate games, and games are essential to living, ergo, climbing is in fact the meaning of life. So, if you want to once and for all cast off the guilt of blowing off everything else to go climbing, Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Receive Teen Wins stimulating talk and a lot more bonus material. Sometimes serious, often controversial, frequently hilarious, always extra. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout today. Today's final bit comes from Joel Brady. Joel, also known as Vampire Professor on Instagram, is a musician climber based in West Virginia. Of this tune, titled I'm Dying Partner, Joel says this. After winning 24 hours of horseshoe hell last year, my partner Andrew Like and I tried to go for 50 straight hours and climb every route, 500 plus, in the canyon, along with Rob DiAnastasio, Vasya Varunikov, and Tyler Padomic. Andrew got bit by a snake, I got bit by a bat, 
One dude got terrible trench foot and another became psychologically incapacitated. And the last one just wanted some wine. So we went 30 hours only and then crowdsourced lyrics for this song, which is about the agony of failure at the 24 hours of horseshoe hell.
pump has got me flying. All I'm doing is dying. You've just reached the end of another Patreon episode of The Runout. If you're receiving your runout fix through the Patreon feed, it means that you've decided to live your days as a giver and supporter, which is a beautiful attitude that will lift your spirits and draw an admiring eye from your peers and loved ones. For this, we commend you because we wouldn't be able to do this without your contribution. Kudos and mazel tov. And if you'd like to reach out with questions, concerns, praise, or criticism, or even contribute some content to Buddy Spray or The Final Bit, email Andrew at Andrew at RunOutPodcast.com or Chris at Chris at RunOutPodcast.com. Although, let's face it, emailing Andrew is probably a better bet. Mm-hmm.